welcome again. Um, Lukella, Ty, Grogan's, Dave, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, again, if you missed the first introduction, my name is Sean. It's a privilege to be one of the pastors on staff here. I've actually not been in the pulpit for the last five weeks. You guys missed me? Uh, you guys are just saying that. I know that's not true. Uh, we've had an incredible team of, uh, of uh, young men fill in the pa uh, pulpit while I've been gone. Pastor Joshua, Kaipo, Cole. Um, so really grateful for them. If you see them, please encourage them and thank them um, on my behalf, at least, for uh, doing such a great job. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to be able to go for an extended period of time and just uh, knowing the church is in such good hands. And so uh, thank you for releasing us. Um, if you were here last week, we kind of gave a little update um, on our Uganda trip. So if you missed it, I think we have the video posted online so you can check that out. Um, but anyway, good to be back. Um, we're continuing on, I think, week seven in our series, Beautiful Mess. Uh, we're calling the series Beautiful Mess because it really is a good picture of what the church is. Um, oftentimes as Christians, we think of the, the New Testament first century church as this vibrant, perfect, idyllic church, um, but nothing could have been further from the truth. I mean, the church um, is and was a mess. Um, our church is a mess, um, and the reason is because it's filled with messy, broken people living in a messy, broken world, uh, and the reason it's a beautiful mess is because Jesus is in the midst of us, right, um, and he is transforming us and shaping us as we submit to his word and surrender to his spirit uh, into the very image of the Son, into Jesus himself. We little Jesus is walking around, which is pretty amazing, uh, but that's the process, and, uh, and the letter of 1 Corinthians is really a, a beautiful picture of this transformative process. Uh, as, as a journey um, uh, with the Spirit of God and the Word of God shaping them, they are being transformed and then are becoming a transformative influence in their culture. And so uh, it's just a really uh, um, great insight, a lot of great insight for us and very relevant for our lives today. Um, I just want to remind you of something that I introduced um, when I started the series. I introduced the series some six weeks ago. Um, I, uh, I said that at the center of this book is a question. And the question uh, that Paul was asking the Corinthians and in turn is asking us is um, how are we responding as believers uh, to an unbelieving culture? I mean, what are our responses to the culture around us? How are we living in the midst of a culture that just um, does not necessarily uh, acknowledge God, follow God, love God? Um, and, and that response is incredibly important. And so I shared with you three responses uh, that weren't original to me. These were from Brady Boyd's book, Remarkable. Um, of, of three responses he observed Christians generally have in the culture. Uh, he said, first of all, there are isolators. Turn to your name and say, an isolator. Say you're not an isolator, right? Uh, but an isolator is someone whose uh, uh, private, personal world um, is more important than the world that God has called us to serve and love and to reach. And so they tend to isolate, create little um, enclaves of Christianity. And uh, they never or rarely ever associate with unbelieving people. They just focus on people that think like them, believe like them, vote like them, kind of look like them. Uh, and so they isolate. That's an isolator. Um, and you maybe know some isolators. Uh, maybe you are an isolator. I don't no. Um, and then there are uh, uh, instigators, he said, and I, I really relate to this one. People who are so kind of fired up about the terrible state that the culture is in that they're nothing but vitriol and angst uh, regarding the culture, and, right? And so they, uh, they believe it's their generational responsibility to take back whatever the culture has stolen from them. 
And, and we're not really sure what that is because, you know, it's like a, some nostalgic notion of what the culture was that they're trying to get back to. Uh, the reality is culture by nature is always uh, driven by the most basis of human nature. You know, sex, money, and power is what we're after in the culture. And, uh, and we'll pretty much do anything to get it. And so um, I'm not sure what it is we're trying to get back. Um, but culture has always been a little messed up. Um, and then there are the integrators. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, these describe many of the Christians in Corinth, and I would dare to say many of the Christians in our churches today. Uh, integrators basically go along to get along. Um, their lives are, look very undistinguishable uh, from people in the culture. I mean, they, they, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they use the money really is no different from, and yet they uh, profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, most generally isolators um, are spiritually very passive. They really, um, don't have any very strong biblical convictions, and so consequently they have a really high tolerance for sin. And so integrators are, I think, probably make up, and this is just my observation, probably not in here at Waipuna Chapel. None of you guys are like this, but other churches across the nation, like we have a lot of instigators, people that are culturally Christian, they profess to be Christian, but really if you look at their lives, it's no different from anyone else in the culture. And so uh, unfortunately, this was the attitude in Corinth. There are a lot of integrators in Corinth, which creates a lot of problems. Um, now, to, to, in all fairness to the Corinthian Christian, um, these were first-generation Christians. Like, I mean, they, they didn't have 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian ethics shaping and molding the culture like we do in the American church. I mean, these guys were brand new. They were like surrounded by nothing but uh, pagan and ungodly behavior. And into that makes um, the, the Apostle Paul steps and he preaches the gospel. And he, um, he becomes a, a spiritual father to them. Neither did they have the Bible, right? They didn't have the Scripture, the Word of God, to, to help shape them and mold them and direct them as a, as a kind of guideline for life. I mean, they had um, spiritual fathers like Paul who would write letters, I mean, you know, from a distance sometimes to encourage them. Uh, and so Paul founded this church around about 49, 50 A.D. And, um, and then after spending a few months discipling them, shaping them, preaching the gospel, and seeing kind of the gospel come alive in, in a group of, um, uh, uh, of people, he then leaves them to kind of continue on uh, to impact and to reach their city. And he leaves for Ephesus, which is about 120 miles to the east, or 180 miles to the east across the Aegean Sea. And while in Ephesus, he gets word uh, that things aren't going that well. Uh, they, they, in fact, the, the Corinthians are failing miserably in their job, uh, first integrating the gospel into their own lives, and then um, effectively uh, influencing their culture uh, for the kingdom of God. And so um, Paul writes uh, this letter to address these, these issues. And, um, and there, there are quite a, a lot of issues. Not only was it a, uh, a, uh, a disunified church, um, but it was also a disgraced church. And uh, uh, Cole did a great job last week of unpacking Packing the, the issue of unrepentant sin and then Paul's solution about, you know, you have to deal with it. Sin is serious. Sin will destroy your life and your witness. And so deal with it. Not only the, your personal life and witness, but the life and the witness of the church. And so the church is called to deal with it internally, right? And, but always to do it in a heart of love, with, always with a goal of restoration uh, and, and renewal um, in that process. 
And so now in, in chapter uh, 6, he's going to continue to unpack another issue. Um, and then he's going to circle back to some more of these behaviors that were just contrary to the, um, to the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God that was so um, impacting the church um, in the church. And so uh, lots to cover in chapter 6. I'll do my best to kind of get through it. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, pick up, uh, go to uh, Corinthians chapter 6. I'll have some of these verses up there for us to look at. Um, um, but, but basically, this is what he, um, he says. Now, what, what he does first in this letter, I love this, because I think this is so essential uh, to, to Paul's heart. Um, I, I say this at the beginning of the series as well. The first thing Paul does as he writes this letter, even though he knows there's a lot of things going on in the church, that you would look at the church from the outside and go like, this is not true of the church. But he reminds them what is in fact true of who they are. Firstly, he says, you're the church of God, Right? That, that you are this ecclesia, this gathering. You are a community of people that have been called out of culture to be a, a beachhead, if you will, of the kingdom of God. So, so you firstly are, 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 are a church of God, the ecclesia of God, the gathering of people around this conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and you have a different set of values. He says that you've been sanctified in Christ. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you've been sanctified, set apart for God's purposes, for his kingdom purposes in the world. And, and that you are then called to be saints. And saints means to some degree pure and holy, but more than that, it means to be different. It's basically your life ought to look different. Like, it should, you should not integrate into the culture, right? There should be a, a very clear distinguishing line between the way you live, you think, you talk, you, you deal with your finances, your sexuality. Every part about you should be different from those that are in the culture because you are called apart. You're set apart. You're saints. God has done something in you. He has, he has redeemed you and restored you and, and brought you back to that original design for life and human flourishing. And not only that, he has deposited his spirit within you. Paul will talk about this in a few minutes. That he's actually given you the Holy Spirit that will now indwell you to empower you, giving you the power and the will to do the things that please God, which is great news, right? Because apart from kind of God's spirit working in me, giving me the power to do the things that please him, um, I'm, I'm going to fail miserably at this. But, but there's a power actor of God is actively working in the believer, right? And this is what, what, what Paul, the language of Scripture, would say that there's a new creation coming about, a restoration, a renewal uh, of your humanity, of, of your desires, of your emotions, and all those things that drive us as human beings are now being transformed and shifted and changed and made new in Christ. This is who you are. And so Paul begins there. He establishes their identity, who they are and to whom they belong. They are children of God, citizens of the king. And as such, they ought to behave differently. They ought to look differently. And not only are they simply to be internally differently, but they are to then use their life, their power, their gifting, the things that God has given them, their resources to then impact the culture that God has placed them in for his kingdom. That's the purpose, right? That's the calling on their lives. And so Paul reminds them of who they are. Um, and, and then in, I love this in chapter 13. We'll get there here in a couple of weeks. Um, that, he, that he says the currency of this kingdom transformation is love, right? The, the currency of heaven is love. It is unconditional, sacrificial, spirit-filled, Christ-imbued, Christ-initiated love. This is how we transform culture. 
Not by rallying against it and railing against it and pointing out all the junk, but literally sacrificially loving people within the community of God and without the community of God for the glory of God. And, and so, so this is the calling that, 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 that Paul is going to remind the Corinthians that they have upon their lives. And, and so um, it's a powerful reminder for us as well. Um, and it reminds us to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing in the culture that God has placed us in? Right? Because the culture that we live in today is not that far removed from the culture of ancient Greece. Uh, there are a lot of things that were going on in the Corinthian church that still go on in our churches today. A lot of things going on in the culture that are still prevalent in the culture today. We'll see that. He's going to highlight some behaviors and things in this list that, that I think we'll go like, yeah, check. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's American culture today. 21st century culture reflects what was going on in Corinth at that time. So, um, Paul is on the beginning of these verses. He's going to address another issue that was kind of prevalent in the, in the, uh, in the Corinthian church at the time. And he begins by asking them a series of questions. So uh, chapter 6, verse 1, this is what it says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Just like bombards them with a bunch of questions. Like, what's going on here? How dare you be taking one another to court? Don't you know who you are? And then he continues. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them down before those who have no standing in the church? Right? That's the issue. Right? Christians are taking each other to court over trivial matters. Right? You owe your brother a couple hundred bucks, and you're like, oh, man, if he's not giving it back, I'm taking him to court. I'm going to sue him for it. You know, or your brother does something to you, offends you, uh, and, and you file a civil lawsuit against him. And Paul's like, man, to your shame, what on earth are you doing? All right? Now, uh, here's the thing. I think these questions are rooted in, in something that was intrinsic in Greek society at the time. The, 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 the Greek people were an incredibly litigious society. Um, the, this is something that was quite incredible as I was, as I was looking at this um, this week. Um, the, 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 a citizen of Athens, which was kind of the, the, the main capital of Greece, um, uh, every male over the age of 30 was considered uh, what needed to be a juror or make himself available for jury duty. They had a very sophisticated uh, system of, of law, and it was a, a jury-based system. A minor case of uh, whatever they would consider minor, you would have upward of 201 jurors to try their case. 201 of your peers, right? So that's twice as many people that are probably in here tonight, right? Just to kind of figure out like who owed who 200 bucks. Uh, if it was a major case, it would be upward of 401 um, jurors. Some cases, record, history tells us, um, had upward of 6,000 jurors to try a case. And, and so just imagine that, that with that many jurors required uh, for, for just minor cases and then major cases, and when it's really big, like thousands of people involved in it, Every single person, by the age, they, the time they were like in their 30s, had spent hours in court proceedings, right? And, and the thing was, the Greeks actually considered this entertainment, right? They loved the debate. They loved the argument. They loved the back and forth and the legal wrangling that went on. And so uh, Greeks were just incredibly litigious. They loved law and consequently loved taking people to, to, to law over just the most trivial items. And the truth is, you know, America is not that much different. You know that on an average year, there are over 40 million civil suits filed 
in state courts across this land. 40 million, right? There are over a million lawyers, active lawyers, registered lawyers in the United States. I think that was as of like 2022 or something like that. So, I mean, like, we are a litigious people, not unlike the Greeks were at the time. And that litigious spirit had kind of found its way into the church. Um, and Paul is saying, man, uh, that's to your shame. This is exactly how it's said. That's to your shame. Can it be that there is no one amongst you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Like he's asking, like, and he's arguing here from this, from this place understanding who we are as children of God. His argument is like, don't you know that in the kingdom of God, you're going to judge angels. Like, you will rule and reign with Christ. And God has given you his wisdom, right? His discernment. And so surely, right, there's got to be one or two amongst you who will be able to settle these trivial disputes that you're having. But instead, to your shame, you're taking each other to court, into the courts of the unrighteous people to try to bring, you know, the world's justice rather than leaning into God's justice and God's righteousness. And Paul says that's to your shame. Now, it is important to note here that Paul is not saying it, it's never appropriate for Christians to go to court. You know, if, if the case is severe, if it's misappropriation of finance or physical or sexual abuse, then certainly the law should be pulled in. But that wasn't the case that was going on here in Corinth, right? I mean, Christians were just taking each other to court, suing each other over trivial matters that surely could have been settled amongst themselves as a family. And so Paul says that's to your shame. It should not be um, within the church of God. And, and so um, then, then Paul is kind of like, not only he's saying it's just, it's just bad business, just don't do that. He actually then leans into um, just a fundamental pr uh, principle of the Christian ethic, right? Um, he says this, uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. The very fact that you actually are, are contending with one another and then taking those contentions into civil lawsuits, he says, you've already lost. You've lost sight of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and so he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And you're going like, what on earth? That's so un-American, right? Um, but this is exactly what Jesus taught us, right? If you're, if some of you who are Bible students, you might know um, the great ethical teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus says, um, do, not resist, uh, do not resist one who is evil, but anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Have you ever thought about that? Like, that's just straight up unnatural. Like, who does that? Like, I know in my natural, like, someone slaps me on the cheek, I'm going to punch them in the face. I mean, this is like almost, re like, instinctually, Right? Like, Jesus is calling us to a very unnatural ethic here. And then he goes on and he says, listen, this is, so he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, right? If anyone takes you to court, you know, to get your, your shirt, he says, give him your jacket as well. Like, what on earth? Who does that, right? That's not a natural response to someone who's trying to take something that is rightfully yours, Right? I mean, if, if you're anything like me, you, you're going to want to, like, fight for your rights. And, and I think in my own heart, it's probably motivated by pride. I don't want to be seen weak. I mean, if someone slaps me on the cheek, I'm going to turn the other cheek. Like, pff, I'm a man. I'm an American. Technically, I'm South African, but, you know, same, same deal. 
right? And someone takes my shirt, I'm not going to give them my jacket. Like, that's just not American. That's just not right. I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to fight for my rights, right? Um, so, so, like, the ethic that we're called to as Christians, I'll just be honest with you. Like, this is, like, unnatural. Like, you would argue this is just, like, we can't possibly do this. And the Bible actually would agree with us. It would say, yeah, what's impossible for man, praise God, is possible with God, right? That, that, that God has empowered us through His Spirit to actually live in a way that is just going to be different. In fact, evidence of the fact that you are indwelled by the Spirit of God is that your life will look different. Paul's going to make that argument in just a minute. That we will be different, right? And, and, and so, um, how do we turn the other cheek, Right? How do we give it? Like, what happens? I mean, there's a, Paul, Paul would say to the Galatian church, he says, don't you know, like, that you have been crucified with Christ? All right? Now, I, I was thinking about this week. It's like, man, if I'm crucified, that means I'm a dead man. And how many rights does a dead man have? We don't have any, right? We don't have any. And so, like, for me to fight for my rights just, just, it just means that I, I just don't have an understanding of what the gospel has accomplished in my life, right? That, that I am dead to the things of this world. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to wrap our heads around, but this is kind of, this is the, what, what Paul is driving us to here. That we ought to be different because something radical has happened within us. And so, consistently living according to this kind of, of New Testament ethic is impossible in our own strength. But God has done something new in you, right? As a believer, you have been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've been indwelled by the very Spirit of the living God. And that ought to allow you, enable you, empower you to live and respond differently in this world. So Paul will go on, right? Um, he's going to address now some other behavioral issues, other things that were going on in the church that, that were so antithetical to the kingdom value um, uh, that, that he had been instilling in these early believers. He says in uh, verse, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Say inherit the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God. This is a really important phrase. He's going to repeat that phrase twice. Um, do you not know? Do you not be deceived? He says, neither do. And then he's going to give us this list. All right. So I'm, I'm going to go through the list and I'll unpack them here a little bit more in a minute. He, he says, neither will the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, uh, adulterer nor men who practice homosexually, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I think to un understand this package, passage, we, we, we really have to understand what Paul means when he says the kingdom of God. Now, if you're anything like me, for the longest time, I, I, when I'd hear that phrase, kingdom of God, I would almost automatically just think of heaven. Now, I don't know what your particular vision of heaven is, uh, but heaven is kind of like this sort of ethereal, kind of hard-to-describe place where God and angels dwell, and one day we get to go there. Kind of, that's kind of the idea. And that's the kingdom of God. That's kind of, and I think many Christians kind of think of the kingdom of God as that. But when you actually study this, this phrase, kingdom of God, and the way Jesus speaks about it, and the way the New Testament authors speak about it, it's talking about the kingdom of God on earth. You know? And so I would say, essentially, the kingdom of God is the world remade. 
Like, this is, this is the goal, right? God is on a redemptive mission for the earth to recreate it back to its original design. This is why Jesus came. And, and Jesus' primary message was this. Repent, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So believe the gospel and repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And King, King, Jesus came not simply to save sinners, but to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And, and so, so the kingdom of God essentially is, is kind of like the, the remaking, if you will, of the world. It's the restoration of the world. All the created order, the natural world, back to its original design. Your, your, your world, your, your body, the, the human, human, humanity restored back to its original design. Where, where there'll be physical restoration, emotional restoration, spiritual restoration. And not only that, re- relational restoration, where relation between God and man is restored, and not only God and man, between God and people, restored. All things renewed. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. The way Paul would talk about that in 2 Corinthians, he would say, don't you know, therefore, in Christ, you are what? You guys, Christians, I know you know this. You're what? You are a new creation, right? God is on a, on a, on a mission to renew all things. And, and you are kind of like the deposit, the beginning seed of, of new creation. Jesus has deposited his spirit within you. You are a new creation, Right? And, and, and so, so this is kind of, this is the, the purpose, the understanding of, of the kingdom. And, and then notice, too, that the, the kingdom of God, this the remade world, notice that, that Paul says it is what? It is earned? No, it is inherited. It is inherited. And, and, the, and the beautiful thing about inheritance, you don't have to earn inheritance, right? Like, God willing, my daughters will inherit whatever earthly possessions I leave after I die, and Jessica leaves after she dies. They'll inherit, not because they were necessarily great kids. They're good girls, but they're not necessarily great. They'll inherit it. Why? Because they have relationship, right? And so, inheritance comes through relationship. And so, and so Paul is saying, kind of like, these kind of behaviors, right? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it begs the question for us, right? Do we know that we are heirs? How do we know, right? How do we know that, that we are, in fact, children of God? That we stand to inherit the kingdom of God? Is there a way of determining to, that, we, that we are, in fact, born again? That's the language of Scripture, that we are born from above. You know, do we know that we are heirs and that we are co-heirs of, of Christ? How do we know that? And Paul will say, well, there's, there's evidence, right? The evidence will be through life transformation. There will be behaviors and attitudes and thoughts and, and actions and, and deeds and, and, and just stuff that you used to do that will be radically transformed in this process of renewal. Evidence of your inheritance will be evidenced in your life transformation. And so Paul goes on to list a bunch of things, right? He's going to like, these things, if you're practicing these things, if you're still habitually kind of immersed in these things, you know, you should have no confidence that you stand to inherit the kingdom of God. This, this new creation that God is on a mission to bring about. Uh, and, and so, like, let's look at the list. You guys want to look at the list? I'll unpack the list for you. Um, um, and, I, and, I, and I'll be honest, it's kind of gritty, 
especially when you read it in the original language, and it's pretty controversial. So, um, so let's have an exercise right now. Just lift your feet up, because I'm about to trade on some toes, so <laughs> if your feet are up in the air, I'm probably going to miss them. All right, so um, let, let you, I'll just work through the list, and then uh, you, know, you can shoot me emails if you need it, but, but we'll just talk about it, because it's here, all right? So uh, the, the first thing he says, um, he says, the sexually immoral, all right? It, it's the Greek word pornos. It's where we get our word pornography from. Um, literally, it means a male prostitute. Um, but a, but a, a, a translation, the intention of the author is basically meaning those who fornicate. Fornication is basically um, heterosexual sex outside uh, of the marriage covenant, right? So any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage would be considered fornication, right? So pornos. Uh, the other is idolatry. Right? Idolatry um, in, in, in the Corinthian culture, in the context of the Corinthian culture, and sexual immorality kind of went side by side. Um, in fact, in Corinth, it was um, sexual promiscuity was considered a spiritual value. And we've talked quite a bit about that. I don't have to go into that. There was a whole temple um, on, on top of the Acropolis with uh, thousands of, of these temple prostitutes, about a thousand, I think, uh, Greek scholars say, uh, that would come and ply their trade um, in, in the city streets of Corinth at night. And so sexual promiscuity and spirituality were closely linked in idolatry. And so, um, it, it, so that, that's idolatry. Um, then he says adulterers. Adulterer um, basically means to be unfaithful. Not only unfaithful to your spouse, to the covenant um, commitment you have made to your spouse, but also unfaithful to God. Um, and then he says homosexuality. And this is kind of like, this is just a cultural hot topic. So probably going to offend some people here, so I'm just, but I'm going to talk about it. Um, homosexuality, it's actually two, in the original language, is actually two words. Um, malakos and asenkoitas. asenkoitas. Um, and, and not to get too graphic, but it actually describes the, um, the active and passive roles in a homosexual relationship. So that's what he's talking about. It's, it's pretty graphic, pretty gritty. Um, now... Um, just because it is such a cultural topic, um, and, and not because it's of any priority in this list, there's no, like, it's not like it's listed on the top of the list as special importance, it's just in there, uh, but, but just because of its cultural relevance for us right now, um, let me just spend a little time on this uh, particular one. Um, here's something that we need to know. Um, both in ancient Greek and Roman culture, homosexuality was accepted, as was fornication and adultery. It was kind of not only accepted, it was celebrated. Uh, Pluto, if you've ever heard of Pluto, a Greek uh, philosopher, uh, he wrote one of the most celebrated uh, works uh, in the ancient world on love. And he used as his muse for that writing his homosexual relationships with young boys. I mean, it was, it was like so entwined into the culture and so accepted that no one blinked to die. We, we know from history that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors had homosexual relationships. But, but here's the crazy thing. Every single one of them was married as well. So not only were they homosexuals, they were also adulterers. Right? And, and so this was the culture, right? And this was normative. It was kind of normative behavior in first century Roman Greco culture. And, and this is the culture into which uh, Paul is trying to insert a Christian ethic of purity and fidelity. Um, and, and so... Um, all that to say is there's nothing new under the sun, right? Since the fall of Genesis 3, sexual immorality has plagued human sexuality. 
It, it is a uh, result of, of, of our fallen state. We have taken what God intended for good, for life, and for flourishing, and we have perverted and distorted it in so many ways, right? And, and Paul makes no kind of like special mention here of homosexuality versus adultery or fornication. They all fall into this category of sexual immorality. Um, and, uh, and so let me just speak into the, just the issue of homosexuality and how we respond to it here today. I mean, we make a big deal of homosexuality in our culture just because it's just such a topic. And sometimes it's just in front of us all the time. Um, I am convinced that our calling in the church is to love people within the culture regardless of their sexual orientation to love them unconditionally with Christ's love, to serve them, to, to compassionately try to understand the, their struggle, their, their pathos, their, their origins, and what's going on in their lives. Um, and so, firstly, it shouldn't surprise us because homosexuality and sexual immorality have been around uh, since the beginning of time that we know, from, at least from the biblical record. Um, to find it in our culture, right? That's just part of the culture that we live in. And not only the part of the culture that we live in, it's part of the, the, part of the culture that the church has existed in since the beginning. Um, but, but what is, for me, disheartening and saddening is to find those same kind of sexual behaviors within the church. Because we as Christians are called to a higher ethic. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit, about God's design and purpose. But when we find it in the church, right, I think that's where we really have to concern ourselves. Um, and just like any other sin, uh, we have to deal with it, you know? And, and so let me just say this. I mean, I'm convinced that every single one of us here, and maybe there's, there's just the exception, um, but have had a past, a sexual past, right? We've had stuff in our lives. And, and, and we are called to journey through that, through repentance and confession, um, and, and begin to se- surrender our sexuality to God um, in community. Um, and so we have to be incredibly graceful with one another. You know, Paul's going to make this incredibly triumphant statement at the end of the thing. He's going to say, like, after listing all these things, he's going to like, and so with some of you, Right? And I, I would submit to you as we go through this list, there's, there's more to come. He's not done yet. Um, we could probably tick off a few boxes for ourselves, you know. Um, and so we have to extend incredible grace uh, with one another. But, but, but the journey of the Christian life is that we are going to walk with one another, right? Um, and, and we are going to submit ourselves together uh, to the teaching of God's Word and to, the, and to the leading and guiding of God's Spirit. And we have to allow those two powerful transformative forces to begin to shape us and mold us into the image and intention that God has for us as human beings. Um, And that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge. So all this kind of sexual sin, nothing new under the sun, right? It existed then and it exists today, right? And how we respond to that kind of sin in the culture and in the church it's going to hugely impact our ability to transform culture um, for any kind of eternal um, purposes and, and uh, lasting. Um, and I'm convinced one of the reasons why there's kind of this resurgence of, of these kinds of behaviors, because I think there was a period, in, in, certainly in Western culture, because of the Christian ethic that was introduced by Paul and, and the apostles 
into this kind of just this, this sexualized culture that had perverted God's intention. Um, that, that has changed, had changed Western culture. But as the, the, the church responds differently to the culture, as we isolate more, as we withdraw more, as, as, we, as, as we just instead of like lovingly try to influence, but just kind of send vitriol and criticism, um, I think our impact on the culture has diminished. And so we see this rising trend um, of sexual immorality come flooding back in. Um, how we respond to the culture um, it, it makes a huge difference in how we will impact that culture for the kingdom of God. And so this is the challenge before us, right? How are we doing, right? How are we doing when it comes to sexual sin? Not only our own personal sin, obviously it starts with us, but how are we doing as we respond to it? And, and in the culture, then as we respond to it, as people are coming out of that culture with all that stuff still intact, um, and this is the challenge that the church has before us. And I think how well we do that will, will ultimately have an impact on how effective we are in changing the culture surrounding us. And so, uh, you know, moving on, right? Paul doesn't stop with sexual sin, right? He goes on and he lists a whole bunch of other things um, that, 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 that are just incongruent to the kingdom of God. So he says thievery, kleptos is the Greek word. It basically is um, someone taking something that they have no right to take. Um, he goes on, he says the greedy. Um, the, the, the Greek word here is really interesting. It's, it's not just kind of like, um, it's kind of like reaching and grasping for more than, than is rightfully yours and, and more than you need. It's kind of, there's just like, I'm never satisfied. I always want more. I'm just gre- reaching and grabbing for more and more stuff. Then he says drunkards. Um, the, the, the Greek word is methosos, um, and it describes a person who consistently drinks alcohol to the point where his behavior is destructive and ruining relationships and community. It's not like you're just sitting in a corner getting drunk, but your drunkenness is, is breaking relationship around you. Uh, then he goes on to say revelers. It's, it's kind of a, a, a hard word to kind of um, um, Describe, but it basically the idea is that you're a troublemaker, right? Like wherever you go, there's relational kind of like chaos in your wake. You're just a reveler. You're just constantly causing trouble. You're abusive in your relationships. Uh, that's the reveler. And then he says the swindler. Now, when we think of swindlers, most of the time we think of con men, people who are robbing people or, or being deceptive. Uh, but but in, in the ancient world, this word really meant businessmen who were ruthless. Not necessarily that they were illegal, but they were just ruthless. Their, their goal to get money, they, they wouldn't consider other people's feelings. They would tramp over. The, they wouldn't necessarily do anything illegal. They were just really cruel and unkind in their practice. They were ruthless. And so he, he gives this list. Now, here's what's interesting, what I found. Like, so we got these sexual sins listed out here, and then we just got these social, these civil sins, if you will, listed. Now, there's... Really, are, are, are there churches that kind of um, embrace all of them with e- equal kind of, you know, just seriousness? Uh, we somehow try to, like, prioritize one over the other. What I've noticed in, in my, like, liberal churches that are more focused on social justice, they, they kind of, like, are rally against the, that last, the greedy and, and the swindlers. Like, they just all over those ones. And then the more conservative churches that are, are, are more concerned with kind of social morality, we, we jump all over the, the, like, the sexual sins, right? But, but Paul doesn't list them in any order of uh, egregiousness or evil. All of them, he says, will disqualify you from inheriting the kingdom of God. 
Um, and you know why? Because there's something common in all of these things. And what's common in all of them is, is that uh, all of these behaviors seek first the interest of the individual over the interest of the community. You know, when you're greedy, when you're a swindler, you're looking to, to, to satisfy your own interest. When you're a drunkard, you're using the resources that are around you to satisfy your own appetite, often to the detriment of the community around you. Um, now, here's where we really make the connection. When we have sex outside of God's design, outside of biblical, the confines of biblical marriage, we're doing exactly the same thing. We're putting our own interests above the interests of community. And this is why God is just so against it, right? And, and, and so I think we, we really kind of see these things um, as connected. But, but, but here, here's why God designed sex. Sex was designed by God to establish long-term committed relationships and community. This was the purpose of that one flesh union. So when we have sex outside of God's design, when we use sex um, we, rather than the gift that God intended it to be for the, for the benefit of community, but rather to satisfy our own particular propensities and appetites, um, we're doing exactly the same thing. We're putting our own interests above the interests of community. And so, sexual sin is not simply breaking the rules that kind of will, will keep you out of heaven. Um, it's the same as slander or swindling or thieving. You're taking something that is ultimately not yours to take. And you're using it in such a way that advances only your personal interest rather than the interests of others around you. Um, and, and so, God says, if that's the behavior you're engaging in, like... You should have no assurance that you will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying if you continue to live like this, right? If you continue to habitually practice these things, then you're deceiving yourself. Right? Because if the Holy Spirit of God is truly indwelling you, right? If you are truly a new creation... It, it, that the Spirit is preparing you to be a participant and a partaker in God's kingdom rule, then there's no possible way that you will continue to engage in those things that will dissociate you and disqualify you from the inheritance that is rightly yours in Christ. Um, and Paul's not done, right? Um, the reason there seems to be kind of this inordinate kind of focus in the New Testament on sexual sin, um, because sexual sin actually has very serious and significant consequences in our lives, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so Paul's going to kind of unpack that for us a little bit here. Um, so this first section is kind of do, dealing with, with, with sex in regard to the kingdom of God. This next section, Paul is going to deal with sex in regard to culture. Um, and so... Um, there was an accepted philosophy in, in Greek, in the Greek culture in the first century that basically said that the physical body did not matter and that all that mattered was the soul. Uh, the physical body was mortal. It would eventually just perish and, 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 and be corrupted. 
Um, and all that really mattered was our soul, our spirit, because that was eternal. That's what, that was the part of us that is transcendent and that um, within the spirit is held everything that is noble and excellent in humanity. And in the physical body is everything that is base. All the base desires, greed, pride, all those things are, are kind of driven out of our flesh or our physical body. And so um, that thinking led to two very different attitudes in first century um, Greece. Uh, attitude number one was the, since the body was evil, I'll attempt to kind of control and discipline my body through self-denial um, in order to curb my natural instincts. Um, and then there was another attitude that said that since the physical body is unimportant, I'm free to do whatever I like, right? And, and, and this was the prevailing attitude in Corinth. And, and so Paul's going to address that. Um, the city of Corinth, as we've seen, has celebrated and embraced sexual promiscuity as a spiritual value and prided itself in its overindulgence and excess. And into this culture of sexual promiscuity and excess, Paul begins to preach the gospel, right? He, he preaches this amazing kind of message of redemption through the forgiveness of sins because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the message of the gospel, he preaches grace. He powerfully preaches grace, that we are not saved because we're good people. We're saved because God is good. And God has done what we could never do for ourselves. And so we are saved by grace through faith. And Cole dealt with this very well. There was a, in the Reformation, this thinking of anonymalism came up, which was basically this idea that since we are saved by grace through faith, we don't have to follow the moral law. And even though this, didn't, this term wasn't coined some 1,500 years after the church in Corinth was established, this was basically the thinking that the Corinthians were operating under. Um, and, and there were two, three very kind of like distorted ideas that, that were driving their behaviors. Number one was this, that since nothing was sinful for me as a Christian, um, because I'm not under the law. So basically I'm free to do what I want. Um, sexual desire, they would say, is, is just another human appetite, so I, I will satisfy it. And then thirdly, they would say that since only the spirit is eternal, what I do with my body, my physical body, doesn't really matter. And so Paul is going to confront these, these, these three kind of just wrong and, and broken thought patterns. And, and, and so he, he addresses them this way. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now notice um, when he says that, that in your Bible, it will be in parentheses. In other words, Paul is quoting someone here. And he's not quoting scripture, right? He's, he's quoting a cultural saying. In Corinth was this saying circling around the church that all things are lawful for me. And yes, it was rooted in the gospel of grace, but it was distorted through their sinful nature, right? And, and so it's, Paul has a response. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, that's what everyone's saying, but I will not be dom dominated by anything, and so Paul is addressing these cultural sayings that were driving the behavior of the Corinthian church. And Paul's response to them is, yes, certainly all things are lawful to you because you've been saved by grace. And we're no longer under law. But not all things are helpful. And not all things um, lead to freedom and human flourishing. And so, Paul is basically saying that the standard for believers should never be whether or not something is unlawful, but whether or not it is helpful, and whether or not it destroys our self-control. Those are the questions that we ought to be asking. 
Is my behavior helpful? And not only is it helpful to me personally, but is it advancing community? And, and is the, the actions that I'm taking, the behaviors that I'm engaging in, are they actually leading me to increasing freedom or are they actually enslaving me? Those are the questions that we need to be asking. Paul then addresses another cultural saying um, in Corinth. Again, in parentheses in your scripture, it says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And, and this led the Corinthians to treat sex as just another appetite to be satisfied rather than a gift from God to be cherished. And so Paul's response to them is this. God will destroy both, the, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He continues in verse 14, he says, God raised the Lord, um, and he will also raise up by his power. So Paul's argument here is, yeah, the body will be resurrected, so it matters. That which is incorruptible and imperishable will actually become uncorruptible. That which is now perishable will become imperishable. That you will one day have a resurrected body. I don't know if you ever thought about that as a Christian. Like, that's a cool thought, right? I'm going on 60 right now, and I could do with a new body, right? And I'm thinking like I'll get my 20-year-old body back, that I'll be like six inches taller, uh, you know, be better looking. I've got like a whole design. I've got a list of God, like that's the body I want. I'm not sure I'm going to get it. I don't think it works that way. Um, but, but Paul's argument here is that the body is eternal, right? But Paul actually digs deeper. There's actually a more powerful and compelling argument that he's going to make in these next verses. He says, do you not know... Um, who is joined to the prostitute becomes one with body with her. For as it is written, two will become one flesh. But he who is joined in the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What Paul is saying is that, that sex is much, much more than just an appetite to be satisfied. You know, when two people join together in, in sexual union, they're becoming one body. And that one body union is more than just a physical union. It is a spiritual union, an emotional union as well. Right? Because that's the way God designed sex to work in the context of biblical marriage. That two will become one flesh. I love the way Timothy Keller, the late Timothy Keller, describes this. He says, sex is a way to donate oneself. I love this language. He says, sex is a way to donate oneself to someone so deeply that two become one. You are yourself, but you are so radically supplemented that you are, just, that you are not just the same. So what are you saying? In Jessica and my marriage, uh, Jessica doesn't simply just make me a better version of me. Um, but, 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 but Jessica has radically changed who I am. And I, in turn, have, she'll probably argue this, but I, in turn, have radically changed who she is because of that one flesh union. This is what, what, what the scripture is describing, uh, this union that happens in the context of marriage through sexual intimacy. That, that, that you are donating yourself so radically to someone that you're not going to pull apart from that union the same. That it's going to radically change you. And this is a powerful thought. Because the same is true regardless of who you are connecting with. Paul is saying even if you connect through sexual activity with a prostitute, the same dynamic is taking place. And ultimately, apart from committed relationship, that will be destructive. God designed the physical union of sex as a catalyst to initiate the, this process of transformation within us. 
And so Timothy Keller goes on to say that sex was intended by God to mirror and reflect and work into the soul the absolute union of marriage. You know, God doesn't intend you to, to be physical with someone without there being a transformative process at work. Right? It's like you, you can't say to someone, like, I want to be naked with you physically, but I don't want to be naked with you emotionally or spiritually or financially. In other words, I don't want to marry you. Right? I, I, just want to, I just want to have this physical union apart from the other. God says it's not the way it works. And some of you know this from experience, right? Like, like, like once, you, once you've crossed the line into a sexual relationship with someone, it just gets complicated, Right? It just gets complicated. You don't just walk away from that. It's complicated. Because God has intended it as a catalyst for deep transformation of the human heart and soul. And when we abuse that, when we misuse it, God says that's an aberration of his design. How are we doing? You doing all right? All right. I got a lot more here. I probably should wrap this up at some point. Uh, and so he says this, he says, flee, right? He's speaking to Christians now, to you and me, those of us who consider ourselves, you know, followers of Jesus Christ. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom God, uh, whom you have from God? I mean, just think about that for a minute. What is God saying here? Like, as a believer, right, you are indwelled with the very presence of the living God. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, right now, as a believer, is indwelling you. You are a walking, breathing, living temple of God's spirit. Like, that reality alone should change the way we use our bodies, right? And so Paul would say that. Right? You are not your own. Turn to your neighbor and say, if you're in Christ, you're not your own. You're not your own. And wait till next week, husbands and wives, Paul's going to say, you're not your own either. You belong to your wife. You belong to your husband. We'll get there next week. Right? And so, you're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify, Paul concludes, glorify God with your body. So Paul is saying here, your physical body belongs to God, right? That should be the reason why we abstain from any kind of sexual promiscuity, that we hold ourselves in purity, you know? And even as I'm talking about this, I'm like, man, I'm just thinking, you know, I know that a lot of us have come out of the culture, out of a very sexualized culture, into the church, and we're dealing with a whole lot of stuff that sometimes we don't even know where to begin to unpack it, all right? And, and just as I said, you know, like I, I, I always try to say that church should be the safest place for us to talk about this stuff, right? Um, obviously, it's not something you get to like blast publicly, but we need people in our lives, right, to be able to journey through this stuff. The scripture says, confess your sins to one to another. Like, firstly, you've got to acknowledge that what you did was wrong in the first place, right? And that's a huge leap for a lot of people, right? But in that acknowledgement, in that confession, aligning your life to God's word, right? There is healing. I can promise you there is healing that God has in store for you. Um, so I'm just going to end it there. Flee from sexual immorality, people. 
Turn to your neighbor and say, flee. In other words, run, right? Run and run towards the opportunities where you can glorify God with your body. It's flee from something, but run towards something. Run to God so that you might glorify God with your physical bodies. Amen? All right. Uh, let me pray, um, and I'll invite the team back up. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. I, it's, uh, there's a lot to uncover here. I know I probably didn't do it justice, uh, but I pray that by your Spirit you'd fill in all the gaps. Um, Lord, I pray that we would have um, in our community groups, one to another, Lord, we would have just honest conversations about these things. Um, and Lord, that you would lead us by your Spirit. Lead us to life and human flourishing. That's your intention for us. We are, Father, washed by your Spirit. We have been justified and sanctified, set apart as kingdom builders here on this earth. Lord, I pray that all these things that so want to rob us of the inheritance that you have set apart for us, Lord, would be honestly dealt with in our own hearts and together in community. Lord, that so we can truly impact our community for your kingdom and for your glory. And I pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.